Uh, it is uh, a great honour to welcome you all here today, uh, and as I say, to welcome Seamus Mallon and Noel Dorr. Uh, on a day when uh, Northern Ireland, the island of Ireland, British-Irish relations, borders are back in the news, as if they ever went away. Uh, and so really, uh, today is like a, a time capsule, but it's also, I think, uh, and I hope, going to be a very interesting look backwards, but a look at where we still are and where we still need to go. Uh, and no better people than, than Seamus Mallon and Old Dorr to uh, give us some food for thought, uh, we've got a, quite a distinguished bunch of people in the audience, and so in addition to um, making Seamus and Noel perform, um, we hope that we're going to have a good conversation, and I would encourage you to uh, feel free to engage uh, in any challenging or interesting way you feel inspired to do so. Uh, let's make this a, a, a lively and interesting conversation, which I've no doubt it will be. I'm delighted to, that we're doing this with the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, the Royal Irish Academy has a great, distinguished record in ensuring that we examine and, and debate and think about uh, our history, our politics, our culture, uh, and I'm very delighted that we're, we're doing this event with the Royal Irish Academy. And I would like now to hand over to Dr. Marie Coleman, who's going to chair the event for us this morning. Dr. Coleman is an academic in Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, and uh, she'll set out the uh, framework for the discussion. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. I think those of us based in Belfast would like to say welcome to you and your family um, to Belfast, and thank you for uh, allowing us to use here of this wonderful facility, which has become a great um, social uh, space for things like boot launches and discussions of this nature over the last few years. I want to thank and congratulate the Academy as well for, for organising the event, for publishing this book, and I think in the last number of years the Academy has established itself as one of the finest public publishing houses on the island and it's um, it's just great to see the strength of Irish published books and, and, and the interest in them. But I think two reasons why the Academy is a very suitable uh, publisher for this book. Having worked for the Academy myself, uh, formerly on the Dictionary of Irish Biography, we were always very aware, well aware of how much importance the Academy placed on its all-island remit. Um, and secondly, of course, the Academy is the publisher of documents on Irish foreign policy, and this probably could end up being uh, the supplement to maybe volume 20 of documents on Irish foreign policy down the line. Um, our two speakers today, I know it's tried to say that some people need no introduction, um, but I, I'll just say a few brief words about the, uh, the two gentlemen on my, my right and my left. Um, Noel Dorr has had a distinguished career in the Irish Civil Service, uh, serving in the Department of Foreign Affairs from 1960 to 1995 having a number of consular and ambassador roles before going to the top job as Secretary General in Ivy House. I noticed that from 64 to 70 he was based in Washington, which must have been one of the most exciting times to be based in the US when you think about the, the context of the changes in American society and politics in that period. And I, I was reminded of a lot of this recently watching the Ken Burns's document documentary on Vietnam, just how uh, how fascinating that period was. Um, so, and not only did he manage 
managed to combine his consular duties in Washington, but he was also studying for an MA in Georgetown, when, as this book makes quite clear, he was not all that impressed to be hauled back to Ivy House in 1970 to deal with the emergent situation in Northern Ireland. I did manage, though, having looked at his members page on the Academy website, I was glad to see he did manage to finish the Georgetown degree. So Northern Ireland did not stand in the way of that. Um, Seamus Mallon then, like many of his, I think, generation of nationalists in uh, Northern Ireland, was politicised by the civil rights movement of that period of the 1960s, um, an Irish movement which, again, was was influenced by events in the US. Um, He was elected to the abort of 1973 Power Sharing Assembly, which will be part, I'm sure, of today's discussion, and was centrally involved in all of the various efforts to produce operational power sharing solutions to Northern Ireland in the 70s, 80s and 90s and I was half expecting that he'd brought off to Brussels this morning um, to, to share his wide experience. And if anybody's interested, as well as being able to buy Noel's book, there is a free publication you can bring with you today and it is the final communica- communique from Strand 3 of the negotiations to deal with Northern Ireland's uh, position within a certain union. There are free copies of the Irish government's um, commu- uh, statement on this morning's deal available as well. Um, Seamus, of course, then would probably be best known as being Deputy First Minister under the executive that was established under the Good Friday Agreement from 1998 to 2001. And as if that wasn't enough of a job, he was also an MP at Westminster for Newry and Armagh and also briefly an Irish Senator. How did you manage to do all that in such a short space of time? I, 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 I must say, I'm very looking at your CV, it's, it, it's very awe-inspiring. I thought we might start with a bit of scene setting. I thought the, the, the obvious thing to do would be to ask the author p- perhaps to just give us a brief outline on his motivations for writing this book and uh, just the experience of, of bringing your reminiscences from uh, 40 years ago to, uh, to an audience today when we're discussing some of the same events. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, first, I'd like to say thanks to Kevin and his family for welcoming us here. Uh, The book was already launched in Dublin a few weeks ago and I thanked various people, including the Academy, and your emphasis on the North-South remit of the Academy is very timely, I think. Uh, It goes back to 1783, so it goes way, way back. Um, But there's one person here who wasn't at the launch in Dublin and who gave me great help at an early stage and advice, and I'd like to thank him. He was in America at the time. That's Professor John Coakley. So although this is not a book launch, I just take the occasion to thank him very warmly. Uh, the book is very much a personal narrative. It's a mixture. It's, uh, on the one hand, a kind of memoir. On the other hand, I've documented it and added quite a lot from the archives here and in uh, Kew in, Lo- in, sorry, in Dublin and in London and to a very limited extent in the public record office here. But it's a mixture then of two, two genres, so to speak, the memoir and the documented account. I'm very conscious that it's just one person's narrative. I was... Uh, a middle-level official in the Department of Foreign Affairs at the time. Uh, I, came, I was involved to a degree when I was on holidays in 1969, and I came back, I was moved back from Washington in 1970. I, I got the MA all right, but I had a higher ambitions, and I just stopped short of the next higher stage of the degree. You could still go back to do the well, PhD. I may do so, yeah. But, uh, anyway. In Queens. Um, <laughs> I don't think they would have me at this stage. I probably couldn't pass whatever the exams were. But uh, in any event, um, I was involved. I was at the Sunningdale Conference and so on. 
And, and my theme in the book, in one way, it's, it's almost a reflection on Seamus' famous comment about Sunnydale for Slow Learners. Uh, I decided not to use that title or any adaptation of it because that was Seamus' coinage and anyway it didn't seem appropriate to use it at this stage. My interest in the book was the development from 1969 to 1974 in British-Irish relations which led to the Sunny Ned Conference and which, in my view, set a pattern for later cooperation, which it seems to me is vital to any solution of the Northern Ireland problem and the problem of our two islands together. Uh, So it's not just Sunny Ned, but it's the four years that led up to it. And what struck me very strongly was in 1969, while the relationship between Dublin and London, if I may use those terms, was relatively good, Uh, Nevertheless, there was an occasion in August 1969 when the Irish Minister for External Affairs, duly appointed Dr. Paddy Hillary, went to London to raise concerns about the the forthcoming Apprentice Boys (coughs) March in Derry, which promised to be much, much larger than usual. There were supposed to be 70 bands rather than a much smaller number. And he was concerned, and he had a private meeting with the British Foreign Secretary, which was polite, but he was more or less told, look, you're a friendly country, but this is none of your business, really. We can't listen to your views on this. There was trouble in Derry, as we know, and following that in Belfast. And uh, the British Army was brought onto the street for the first time, and I won't go into all of that. It's in the Scrarman Report and elsewhere. But uh, after the events, on the 15th of August, approximately, Hillary went to London again. And this time he met two foreign two. Uh, ministers of State, Lord Stoneham and Lord Chalfant from the Foreign Office and the Home Office, and he was told very flatly in very frank terms we cannot listen to the views of a foreign country in relation to the problem of Northern Ireland. So it was really a flat acceptance that the whole problem had been settled in 1920-21 and although there were good relations between the two countries it was certainly from an outside position that the Irish government was commenting and they were not welcome to do so. What struck me then, again, in August-September 1971, there was a very sharp public exchange between the Prime Minister Ted Heath and uh, the Taoiseach in Dublin, Jack Lynch. A public exchange of telegrams, a most unusual practice in diplomatic life, uh, there had been Heath had asked for a meeting or had asked Brian Faulkner, the Prime Minister in Stormont at the time, to go to Checkers for a meeting. And uh, Lynch more or less deliberately sent a fairly provocative telegram to assert some sort of role for Dublin. And Heath, understandably perhaps, became quite angry and responded in a similar vein. Now, shortly thereafter, Heath actually called Lynch and Faulkner and asked them, invited them both to come to Chekhov's at the end of September 1971. But what interested me was how things went from that kind of relationship in 69 and 71 to Sunnydale, <coughs> where you had a conference of the two governments. There were seven ministers from the Irish government and three from the British government. <coughs> and the parties, the democratically elected parties in Northern Ireland, which were willing to participate, to try to sort out the problem. And that resulted in an agreement in which the British government accepted that there would be a Council of Ireland 
between North and South with no direct British involvement. So it seemed to me quite an interesting historic thing. How did we get from 1969, where it's none of your business, to 1973, December 73, when the British government says, North and South have your council and we'll, we'll have some input at times, but we won't have any direct involvement. Now, uh, of course, Sunningdale didn't work in its primary objective. It didn't end the violence in Northern Ireland, as you know, it collapsed. <coughs> the executive collapsed in May 1974. But it seems to me also, looking back, first of all, that that sort of uh, understanding on the British side, that this was a legacy to both countries from a very tangled and complex history between these islands, and that it behoved both governments to play their part in trying to solve it for the people of both islands. That pattern was established at Sunningdale for all the later tensions and ups and downs that happened. And that was terribly important, it seemed to me, in getting us to where we are today. And then secondly, many of the structures of Sunningdale, which were put in place for a time, and, and, or were to be put in place, and didn't quite work, they can be still discerned, it seems to me, in the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement of 1998. And by that I'm talking about, well, first the cooperation between the two governments as a backstop to the whole thing. Secondly, the idea that in a divided community of Northern Ireland, the old Stormont system, which was modelled on the Westminster Parliament, where winner takes all, never quite worked because it, there was always just one winner. So you needed in a divided society some kind of power sharing. Thirdly, you needed some sort of expression of the Irish dimension. And that here, this Irish dimension, which first appeared in the Green Paper of October 1972, it seemed to me was a recognition that intrinsic to Northern Ireland was an Irish dimension. It was part of the complex problem. It wasn't some external role for Dublin, but that there, were, there was a strong community here in Northern Ireland who looked towards Dublin, just as a strong community looked towards London. So it, it, there had to be an Irish dimension, and here you had the notion of a Council of Ireland. Then you had the idea of reassurance to the two communities, which was expressed at Sunningdale in the form of two parallel declarations, for a strange reason that the two couldn't quite agree on a single text. So the two governments made parallel declarations. The British government, the Irish government said there could be no uh, unity in Ireland without the consent of a majority and the British government said similarly but then they said if there were such consent they would provide for Irish unity. So that was another element. So the elements that I see as relevant from Sunningdale to later um, efforts at a settlement the role of the two governments the structures for cooperation and uh, power sharing in Northern Ireland. A north-south link, which was at that time to be through a Council of Ireland, now is in a different structures. And this <coughs> guarantee to both communities in Northern Ireland on the consent issue and on future unity if there were consent. Now all of that was uh, the outline at Sunnydale carried through in much more developed form, of course, through the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, which caused a great deal of opposition here, but there the emphasis was on the two, was on the two governments cooperating and providing the possibility of devolution, but it didn't develop 
And then you get on to the 90s and the Belfast Agreement, which I, I won't go into in detail, but you have those that outline filled out in, in greater structure. Now, I'll just make two more points and then I'll finish. I've gone on, it's a bit too long. <coughs> the, it is said that there, there, I've listed in the book six reasons why I think Sunnydale failed. Of course, the violence continued and there were various reasons. The, the uh, commitment of both governments, perhaps, on the status issue wasn't sufficiently strong because the Irish government was still bound by Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution. There are six reasons which I won't go into in detail. But one, one common view is that Sunningdale was overloaded from Dublin on the Council of Ireland. Now, it's possible that maybe it could have been done a bit more prudently at the start, but I want to emphasise the point that a Council of Ireland was necessary at the time. Otherwise, it would have been regarded as an internal settlement, and the SDLP in Northern Ireland would not have been able to carry that, would not have gone with it. There would not have been a settlement unless that Irish dimension were accommodated in the Council of Ireland. You can debate then how that was actually handled but that was, it seems to be, a necessity. Uh, the second thing I'd like to say is that while Sunningdale is regarded as the past and uh, something that didn't work, the argument that it was premature, which you get to a lot of people making, say Jonathan Powell and others say, well, in any conflict there has to come a time when people are tired of fighting, when they realise there's a stalemate, and then you go in and try to reach a settlement. Well, first of all, you can't, if there's a conflagration, conflagration going on in an island as ours was, you can't just sit back, sit back and say, well, one day we'll be able to try to settle it. But leave that aside. It seems to me that to buy into that is to buy into the narrative that the real conflict was Republicans versus the British government. It seems to me it was a far more complex and deep-seated historic problem and that uh, Sunningdale answered some aspects of it, or at least outlined how they could be answered. And to that extent, uh, we still have carried it forward, but it is not enough to say that it was a conflict between Republicans and the British government. The real progress came when it became accepted that there were three sets of relationships to be accommodated, internal to Northern Ireland, north-south and east-west. And you still have that in the Good Friday Agreement, strands one, strands two, and strand three. And Sunnydale was a brave attempt in its time to deal with that. It wasn't sufficient. The different elements weren't adequately de developed. They have been developed now. There still remains the question, and this is still a question, it seems to me, very live today, which makes what I was writing not just history, but <laughs> relevant, I would think, still, is can you have structures within which representatives of two communities with radically different aims for the future can somehow cooperate in the present for the good of everybody, while still being entitled as they are to pursue those aims for the future, provided they do so by peaceful means? Or is it always going to be a zero-sum game, what one gains the other loses? That's the real question, and that's the question that seems to me is still alive today. I'm sorry for going uh, no, on so no, long, that's, but that's, uh, um, you, you long pushed the button when you asked me about the book. So that's yes, uh, I, I scribbled lots of <laughs> notes there. Um, I, 
uh, beginning at the end, as I often do, um, I wanted to pick up on that the, the slow learners comment, and I, I was just saying to um, uh, to Seamus Mallon here earlier that the the, um, the comment has uh, has gained legs. I noticed this morning somebody on Twitter uh, speaking of the current deal, saying that Friday's deal was Monday's deal for slow learners, uh, and I have to say generations of history and uh, politics students in Queens in the last twenty years have been writing essays on was the Good Friday Agreement sunning deal for slow learners, and um, one. One comment that Noel has here towards the end of the book is uh, and something I've wondered about myself often um, is speaking of, of, of Seamus. He did not specify to whom his implied reproach was addressed. So could we ask you, um, uh, who were your slow learners or who did you have in mind when, uh, I mean, Noel has talked about some of the, the structural and other comparisons um, could you elaborate on that uh, question uh, a little bit? And I'm conscious that his, his walking stick is behind me there, so uh, <laughs> thank you. Behave myself. Uh, essentially, two sets of people: those who intentionally were trying to destroy uh, the executive and the assembly, which was set up uh, in 1973. My reason for saying it was this. I worked very closely, and still do to an extent, with people who are in trouble. And at that time, with people who are involved in the IRA, involved in the UDA, and other organisations. And in many ways... It broke my heart to see young men and women, maybe 17, 18 years of age, going into jail for 18 years or 20, the best years of their lives, or going into a coffin out of which they would not return. And why were they doing this? They knew they knew that uh, they were pawns in the game after they'd spent time in prison. But then they had taken uh, the old lie, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, the famous poem from the trenches of the war resonated with me every time some y- young lad's parents came in and said can you do anything he has been there already for 14 years any chance of getting him out no. those organisations who put those people in that position uh, were not just slow learners they were evil slow learners and we should never forget that in effect had Sunningdale had the chance to continue uh, and I believe this very firmly it would have been successful why do I say that Number one, it would have given us an opportunity at that stage 
to consolidate the, what had been agreed. At that time, in the community that I represented, there was a great hope. There was a feeling of hope, of confidence. Here we are, first time, the first time in history that was a, an administration in Stormont and the nationalist community are represented on It's that type of hope and exhilaration uh, coming at that stage. It was represented uh, in many ways, uh, not least the returns at the ballot box, where people in the community uh, expressed their views as well. But unfortunately, the slow learners decided they knew better. The provosts did it with their bombs and their bullets. The loyalist paramilitaries, and I hesitate to use the term loyalist, um, they were doing it on the streets with cudgels, road checks, <coughs> and all sorts of ways in which to turn turn off society in the north of Ireland. <laughs> no lights, no petrol, no hope. No hope. And that was what they were banking on. It, it was a time of new faces, New faces on the political scene. Uh, new faces coming into the process from the Republic of Ireland that hadn't been there before. People coming over from London who, in many ways, were people who were testing the water for various types of options. So there was an excitement there as well. I find it hard to forgive or to explain that that opportunity was lost. In many ways, because of a British government and a, a Labour government, <coughs> had not got the courage to face down the challenges to the agreement. Uh, Merlin Rees, who was the Secretary of State, <coughs> capitulated. As Mumolam did in relation to the Gervahi Road incident at a much later stage <laughs> to stretch the imagination even further Theresa May seems to have done it a few days ago it is that type of feeling that it has left with me and many other people one of the most abject uh, performances 
on stage or screen or in politics that I have ever seen was Merlin Rees's when he came to our party meeting to explain to us why he didn't. Uh, it was abject. We shouldn't, I couldn't take any pleasure out of it, even. But it was atrocious. Sorry. No, no, not so. When he came to the stage where he compared it with what had happened uh, in the Czech incident, where the Russian troops were sent in to clear protesters off the street. And he said, did you expect me to send the troops in and the tanks in to challenge working men on strike? Oh, I gasped. That was part of it. That was left a deep scar within the nationalist community. It also prompted one of the questions which is still unanswered. And that question is, is the political process adequate to solve this problem? It posed that question. And it didn't weigh. If governments are going to run away when the crunch comes, can there be a solution? If you have men who have guns and they choose at any time to use them because of the, they haven't got any arguments left, can the political process sustain that? I believe it can and I believe it will. Noel has written a tremendous book here. I have found it immensely interesting. You don't read it overnight. (laughs) 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 But what it does is certain certain things that uh, other books of nature haven't. Number one, it has given the background to the circumstances in which political agreements are reached. The things you never hear of or see of, the amount of work that was going on, the amount of contact between the Irish government and the British government, the way in which men... Uh, people by the very force of their uh, truthful uh, personalities were able to get over humps I think of Dermot Nelly who was the leader of the Republic of Ireland's uh, officials then and Robert Armstrong Two men whose word you could take. And uh, you know, one of the one of the most crucially important things in politics, you've got to be as good as your word, or you you're, you're not gonna solve anything. 
I thanked Noel for the book. I said, I will thank God for enough time to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) when you... When I'm trying 40 years after the event to remember events, uh, they tend to blur. I just leave you with two things, two, two, two flavours of that period of time. Uh, we're coming the day the executive fell. We're coming f- from my house in Market Hill to Stormont. I had with me in the car Paddy O'Hanlon, Tom Daly, John Hume and Frank Feely all on the grounds that they had distances to go the night before and maybe felt safer where I live. God knows what gave them that notion. (laughs) (laughs) However, off we went. Got to put it down, couldn't get through, went into the Mahan station, asked for some help from the army who told us to get lost in rather crude terms. We drove away round to Machri to get onto the M1 to get to Belfast to go down the Shaw's Road and the police car in front of us. Out! We were used to that out we got. This fellow said, took his cap, I said, sorry lads, he said, we saw Mr Hume in the back and thought he might have been kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you sure he wasn't? <laughs> we weren't lucky that day. <laughs> In any sense, the young, the young policeman said, look, we'll give you an escort up to storm. And here we go with all sirens blazing through all of the road checks uh, on the day that we were all going to be going on the dole. Simple as that. That I will always remember, not least for Paddy O'Hanlon's remarkable sense of humour, gallows humour, (laughs) as as we (laughs) travelled along that road, uh, and the remarkable way in which John could bring silence uh, in a constructive way every now and again where are we now will we soon be there <laughs> like a child going on holidays <laughs> but he knew he knew what we were going to meet with we got there and that was it the last little anecdote I want to say would tell you that after the Council of Ireland was agreed, the Unionist party involved in the executive was under severe pressure. We knew that, they knew that. (coughs) Stan Orm was also a Labour 
party minister, great friend of our parties, he thought. Stan came to our room, room 17, and asked us if we would announce that we would delay any movement on the Council of Ireland to give the Unionists breathing space. And if we did, Marcus, he would move very quickly on the ending of internment. There was a long discussion afterwards, and my view was, and still is, that it wasn't the Council of Ireland. That was the real issue. It was the fact that partially was central to the solution. Have they come to terms with that? I don't know. But what I do know, and this is, I, 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 I'm almost afraid to say this, there's a huge chasm has been created. Uh, question now remains maybe we could probe it a little further is it possible that representatives of the nationalist community and the unionist community can work together in the sharing of administrative power that's a question that I think has been posed again since Sunningdale <coughs> in relation to the point I had made. Is that still possible? Can we go on with the zero-sum uh, type of approach? If you get it, it's bad for us. And we have never seemed to be able to get down to the us and them bit and start from the beginning, right from the beginning, so that we may have maybe a wider look on something which has narrowed substantially up to now. Just one point uh, you raised there, and it's one of the, the six points, Noel, that you identify as the, the potential reasons for the failure of Sunningdale, and that's the fact that the um, uh, the personnel of the British government changed midway through the negotiations. Um, a, a British a general election called in Britain for for British events. Maybe uh, people could look at that as yet another example of uh, Northern Ireland suffering from wider uh, events in Britain. But you went from a situation of Heath chairing the talks and the uh, impression I get from reading uh, everything I've read on it is that there was quite a, a good working relationship built up there. And then suddenly there's a new new set of faces with um, Harold Wilson and particularly Marilyn Rees. Uh, how would you sum up the significance of that change of government? I think it was very important. Uh, I do list six reasons here. 
before I say anything else, I just say emphasize again, this is just my narrative. This is one narrative. There are other narratives. There are other aspects to be dealt with, particularly internal Northern Ireland aspects, the role of the SDLP, the role of the parties here. <coughs> this is my account. However, I, I list six points. It seems to me uh, we've all forgotten that Sunningdale was only the first part of what was to be a two-part conference. The second part was to be the formal part where the thing would be signed. And in the meantime, the details of the Council of Ireland were to be worked out. And the Sunningdale communique says, we will meet again for a more formal conference early in the new year. Now, this, is, this was in December, early in the new year. So the second part of the conference would have put the structures in place and specified what the functions of the Council of Ireland were to be and so on. Then, unfortunately, the British election came in February 1974. Uh, Ted Heath went to the country more or less on the basis who governs Britain. I think the miners' strike was on and so on. So it was for completely different, larger UK reasons. <clears throat> that seemed to me to mean that a judgment was being made here on the structures agreed at Sunningdale before they were fully in place, before we even knew what they would be in detail. The functions hadn't been specified yet. So it seems to me it's a bit like making a judgment on a building when the scaffolding is still around it. Uh, the, the electorate here, willy-nilly, although the election was theoretically about who governs Britain or whatever the phrase was, uh, it was a time to judge what was happening and Faulkner's, Faulkner's support had definitely weakened. But the judgment was made at the wrong time. And then, to compound it, the election led to a change of government. And inevitably, Wilson, who came to power in the Labour government, Prime Minister, he had put forward a 15-point plan earlier for United Ireland, so on, which some people were dubious about whether he was serious about it and all that sort of thing. But nevertheless, whatever it meant, it meant a different government to the one that had just negotiated Sunningdale. And Heath, I have to give him full credit for this, once he committed himself to it, he spent day and night at Sunningdale, literally, he had the Italian Prime Minister Rumor visiting him, and he was supposed to have lunch for him in Chequers. And he, uh, I think he had the Foreign Secretary do it. He went over and had a brief talk with him and helicoptered back again. So he was there literally day and night to five in the morning and so on. So he had really committed himself personally to it at that stage. Now you had, I think there's a biblical phrase about someone who knew not Joseph, so a, a government coming in that really didn't feel that was there were personally involved. And as Seamus had talked about Marilyn Reese, and my own view from outside was that he was not, to say the least, a very strong Secretary of State. So then you had other reasons which I've mentioned. One was the Irish government were suddenly caught up in a constitutional challenge by Kevin Boland in Dublin, which went to the High Court and then the Supreme Court, claiming that the Sunningdale communique, although it was still only a communique at that stage and not yet the formal agreement that had been promised, that that was contrary to the Constitution in Ireland. And the Irish government were advised by their lawyers, look, shut up, don't say anything, this is sub judice, this is in the court. And furthermore then, the lawyers in the court, for good legal reasons, understandable legal reasons, had to argue, oh no, this is not contrary to the Constitution, this is relatively minor, this is nothing very big. <coughs> Whereas the real political need was to say, for God's sake, this is a chance to solve the, the, the conflict in Northern Ireland, to sell it. It, both here and Faulkner in Northern Ireland, I think, was more defensive about it than trying to sell it. Because the two leaders really should have gone back and tried jointly to sell what they had done after the settlement. So all of those things 
were, were reasons, if you like, why it failed. Uh, the other question of whether it was the Council of Ireland that sank it, uh, all I can say, and I don't think it's quite <coughs> fair to quote this, but I do, on page three, three, uh, 384, uh, I quote uh, from the memoirs of Brian Faulkner, which were published in 1978, after he had died. And there's an epilogue included in that book, which is a letter from Faulkner to Roy McGee, in which he says the following, Certainly I was convinced all along that the outcry against the Council of Ireland was only a useful red herring. The real opposition was to sharing of power. Now, I, I'm not sure, to be fair to Brian Faulkner, that that would have been really his full opinion. But it's a very significant thing to have, uh, to have said. And he had claimed earlier, and claimed in the memoirs, that it was he who first proposed the Council of Ireland. <coughs> well, that's not quite Obviously correct. He, the he, did, he, did, he did have, I know, but in, <coughs> recent, in more recent times, he did have um, it in mind as largely on security issues. <coughs> but if you read the Green Paper published by the British government on the 30th of October 1972, it sets out in an appendix all of the different positions of the different parties in Northern Ireland, including some that weren't <coughs> formerly parties at the time. All of them <coughs> had some sort of north-south structure. So all of them recognised the need to give some expression to the Irish dimension. <coughs> I'm sorry, I've gone on a bit past your question. No, no it's, uh, in fact, you've answered, you've given <coughs> me an additional answer because my, I think the point we wanted to tease out was there was how... Uh, even internal uh, political events in Britain could have such a strong impact. Mm. And even the, you raised the Kevin Boland issue, which shows as well that internal political dynamics within the Republic of Ireland also constrained the, the position of the Irish government. I think at this I think one thing both of our... Yes, sir. I think, uh, thanks very much. It's just very briefly to add to uh, the 74 election. Uh, <coughs> those of us who fought for seats in it we will not forget it. If you remember, we had to canvas the campaign against a background where two of the most popular men in Northern Ireland had called upon the nationalist community to not vote. One was Dennis Fall and the other was Raymond Murray, two men from whom a great admiration I was at school with both of them. But what, in effect, that did was a challenge to the political process. And I'll never forget going into a polling station in Mullabon with a friend of mine and a good stall with Sean, uh, Sean Gallagher. A guy with a gun and another guy with a pencil and paper writing down the names of who might vote. <coughs> now that was the background to it and I just <coughs> that made it exceptionally <coughs> difficult and there again you had another notch added to the view that the political process was not the way to solve the problem. The other thing that I would draw attention to very much because it it 
It offended me maybe as much as it offended the people it was aimed at. If you remember Harold Wilson's statement, where he called the Unionist people <coughs> scroungers, remember that? That awful, awful piece of uh, uh, of what was supposed to be a leader's speech. Scroungers. Now, I could call many unionists many names, but one of them I wouldn't be using as a name like that. Now, that got under the skin of many in the unionist community, and indeed it got under the skin of others, like myself. Because I've lived among the unionist community all my life, they're not scroungers. They are, as the little quotation that Noel has used by John Hewitt, uh, I think it's apt for this to, to counterpoint against the sponsor's speech where Page 85. Page 85. Yes. Sorry, sorry about this. Uh, Jonathan, is it the. Can I read it for you? Yes. Yeah. You have it to hand. This is a poem by John Hewitt, uh, which struck yeah, me yeah. very strongly. <coughs> you probably know the name very well, maybe than I do. He's writing, apparently, about the Roman settlers in Gaul 2,000 or more years ago, but you know, of course, he's writing about somebody much closer to home. And this is the bit that I read. We are changed from the raw levies which usurp the land, if not to kin, to co-inhabitants. For we have rights drawn from the soil and sky, the use, the pace, the patient years of labour, the rain against the lips, the changing light, the heavy clay-sucked stride have altered us. We would be strangers in the capital, this is our country also, nowhere else, and we shall not be outcast upon the world. Seems to me that's uh, very opposite. And as a, although he's talking about Rome and settlers in Gaul in ancient times, you can apply it very closely to home. <clears throat> I think one thing both of our, our speakers have given us is a, an absolutely fabulous sense of the context. <clears throat> I suppose the historian in me uh, came here today trying to uh, imagine that I didn't know what happened afterwards and to get a sense for the atmosphere of uh, 1973 and 74. And I think you, you've both <clears throat> really set the scene very well there. I think we've we plenty of time for the, the rest of the audience to... Um, to ask questions. I think that's we, we talked about that and we're happy enough to, to take questions. Um, uh, well, I'll field them. I'll just send them to each of those. I won't do the answering. Um, so if anybody has any uh, other comments on, on any of what's been raised here today or other, uh, other uh, aspects surrounding um, the Sunningdale uh, Agreement, I think this is a good chance to tease them out further. Eamon, then, then Martin. Eamon Phoenix. Uh, um, just two things. I remember the election to the Assembly in 1973. It was the first stormed election under PR. 
which are being filed in local elections in May uh, that year. <coughs> and I was working as a student, I got a job as a presiding officer in the Marcus area of Belfast. <coughs> and I remember the polling station being shot up by the IRA, who had opposed nationalist participation in the election uh, during that period. So that was part of the background as well. But the other thing that strikes me as significant was when Brian Faulkner lost the vote at the Ulster Unionist Council meeting in the City Hall on the 4th of January 1970, just three days into the executive, and with a statement, this is the year of reconciliation and all of that, that was a critical moment. Even Heath reckoned Faulkner was finished there. Even though he was still supporting the executive and so on, if you read the cabinet minutes that day, the next day, he thought <coughs> Mr. Faulkner was distrusted and he didn't have the charisma to carry unionism with him when he lost that vote. Now, he didn't have to resign as unionist leader. He could have, you know, soldiered on. But he reckoned it was such a critical vote. He only lost by about 57, 58 votes in the Ulster Hall, but was a bane for his blood from members of the Vanguard Party who were kind of a uh, sort of a ginger group within unionism, the Robert Bradford and people like that. And that seemed to be a real watershed to me. Because the impressive thing about the executive is they agreed on everything in a very convivial, cordial atmosphere at every vote until the May vote when Faulkner decided to resign. But I did think that from that moment onwards, even before the March election, Douglas and the Sunning went away, even before the arrival of the rather shambolic Merlin Week, you know, the old, I think Paddy Devon called him, uh, he said he was always um, he was always wrestling with his conscience. Because the patient was always a draw. I suppose that raises the, some of the issues you raised about the 74 election as well. You talked very evocatively there about the context of it, and uh, I suppose the, the outcome on the unionist side was very uh, was really uh, quite damaging to Faulkner as well. So it, would you it, agree with Eamon's assessment of it, the, cru- the crucial nature of his, his, his loss of unionist support? I, I, I would agree fully with that. The, that was translated <coughs> into every parish in the family, in the whole of the north of Ireland. That unease was represented. That was represented in that vote. And you know, we go through, we go through a lot of uh, things in our political lives. But the one thing that I think we should recognise I saw two leaders of unionism being uh, politically assassinated by their own parties. One of them was Faulkner, the other was uh, David Trimble. But I also saw (coughs) the amount of abuse and hardship they took before it and it's something we should remember Uh, again measure that against the sponger's speech and it starts to put things maybe in a different perspective for all of us the the, Eamon said that uh, and he's right that there was no disagreement it all happened in our room, 17, <laughs> because at that period of time, 
we were all learning. We were new to politics. It hadn't happened before. And uh, we had a very mixed <coughs> gathering of people in our room. Uh, you mentioned Paddy Devlin, I think of Paddy, and many others. But there was a dynamic there. There was a healthy thing abroad in the, in the sense of politics, which has been lost almost now. Politicians seem to have become the walk and talk, and probably think like civil servants. I'm sorry, no, <laughs> no longer a civil servant. But it's, I'm trying to make the point about the uh, robustness of what politics was then. And it's lost now. The men of violence have taken that over from us. We have to get that back. The Irish government's reaction then, when that happened in, can you kind of recall January 74 when Faulkner lost that (coughs) crucial support? Well, I do agree it, it was important. In fact, as I mentioned in the book, uh, just to quote <coughs> here, Falk, it was the, uh, if I'm right, the Ulster Unionist Council. Yes, I'm not terribly <coughs> familiar with the intricacies of the Unionist Party organisation, but the Ulster Unionist Council, described as the governing body of the party, it had 820 members, and Faulkner lost by a majority of only 53 out of about 700 voting. So it was, as I said here, a catastrophe. He resigned as leader of the Unionist Party on the 7th of January, but he retained his position <coughs> as leader of the party in the Assembly and head of the newly established executive. But in his memoirs four years later, he's very bitter about the Unionist Council as an archaic body. He says it was so ludicrous that a major political party should have on its most powerful body members of hostile and competing parties. I was convinced that the Unionist Council had ceased to be a suitable organisation for the propagation of Unionist policies in Ulster. He mentions that, you see, there were members, it was a block of members nominated by the uh, the Orange Order. So, although it was the Ulster Unionist Council, the governing body of the Unionist Party, it had, if you like, competing bodies nominating members. Now, I don't understand the intricacies of that, but it it was pretty uh, disastrous. (coughs) Dublin was obviously very concerned. As I said, Dublin itself was sort of blocked at this moment by this um, Boland case from coming out strongly about it. But gradually, uh, they were. Uh, Faulkner got on to Dermot Nally, who was the, at the time, Assistant Secretary to the Government and a very prominent figure. He was mentioned already, I think, by Seamus. And he, had, he said he asked that no North South meetings of ministers take place for the time being. And through, through the following months, <coughs> there were a series of meetings with Faulkner and Cosgrove and Irish Minister, or the whole. Executive, and there were a whole series of meetings, and there were constant exchanges. And uh, I think Dublin was quite sympathetic, while still insisting, move to the next stage, move to the the formal stage, get the thing settled. If it had been bedded down for a year, let's say, and then an election had been held, well, a judgment would have been made on it for what it was, not for what it might be or what people feared it might be. So Dublin was very concerned to get, uh, to get the second stage going, and that's a constant theme from these meetings. But as the thing got more and more fraught <coughs> in, in Northern Ireland, 
um, there was a willingness to, in Dublin to see what could be done to ease the way. So, and there wasn't an absolute insistence on all of the thing immediately. So I, without going into the detail of it, there was some willingness as it came closer to the, the fall of the executive in May to try to find a way through. But um, I, just to summarise, it was that was pretty disastrous. Faulkner was losing support. And uh, the sad thing just occurs to me that on the cover of the book you have Faulkner and Cosgrove walking together at Sunnydale. And there were two, they actually had quite a good relationship. They were rather similar in some ways, their love of horses and so on. <laughs> and they look similar in some ways. So, you know, there were, there were positive aspects that could have worked uh, and might have been developed. But it, as I, I quote in the book, uh, the historian Sir Lewis Namier, it saves nothing to expostulate with history. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't. This is the way it happened, but so sad that it did. I think, I think Martin Manser was <coughs> next, and then the back, question <coughs> in the back. Uh, uh, it was a great privilege to be here to hear the moving testimony of uh, Seamus Mallon, who, as we all know, is a very, very courageous politician. I'd like to congratulate Noel on, I think, filling a serious gap in terms of I'm not aware of any similar study um, on something there has been written, and it's important that it should be understood in detail. One of the things that's always puzzled me as a historian is uh, very little emphasis on the fact that the Council of Ireland was originally a suggestion of Sir Edward Carson in the Irish Convention of 1917, and what he Mm. was trying to do was to appease the Southern Unionists, Unionism split in 1917, I mean, who would have preferred a 32-county home rule to a partitioned Ireland. And my uh, conviction is that even in the 1920 Act, Uh, Walter Long's idea of a Council of Ireland was primarily meant to appease Southern Unionism rather than than nationalism. And, you know, maybe a little bit more could have been made of that historical uh, context when it was being so attacked by um, Unionists uh, and and Loyalists. Now, it does strike me from reading your book, which I only finished about an hour ago, apart by the appendix, that is, is that certainly the plans for the Council of Ireland were very um, very elaborate. Um, I suppose in 1998 you have a somewhat more modest (coughs) north-south dimension. Perhaps it would be... I do agree with your basic thesis uh, that it was more convenient and plausible to scapegoat the Council of Ireland that the, the real objective, the real objection was to power sharing. The final point I would make is in that you talk in general terms about the southern constraints. There's no doubt that in Fianna Fáil, traditional republicanism, it was split in the early mid-70s into uh, two factions. It wasn't just Kevin Bowler, who, of course, had actually defected and formed his own small party, but um, certainly Charles Hoy, I know from talking to him, he never liked Sunning Day, considered it power-sharing, undemocratic, and so on. And I can remember, I was just living in Tipperary at the time, um, um, uh, writing against a certain GR who was putting the traditional Republican critique of Sunningdale and I was defending it as best I could and certainly that was something I never agreed with Charles Hoffey on. Thank you.
<laughs> I, I'm conscious of time as well. There are two more people indicated questions. Maybe if I took those questions and then we um, put, put the questions, Martin's question and the other two to the panel, would that be uh, acceptable? Because I saw somebody running past there with a tray earlier. Um, so there's gentlemen at the back and then the lady uh, in front. So if we get those questions and then maybe we'll... Uh, uh, my name is Kristen Cade. Uh, I was one of the few creatures that started in Northern Ireland at the beginning and ended on a part in fact. And I ended as political director and as the British Joint Secretary of this wonderful organisation, uh, the British Irish. But in 1974, I was one of Brian Faulkner's private secretaries. And I, I wanted to give a little insight into just a little addition to the point about that disastrous council. The two private secretaries, my boss, Principal Private Secretary and me, and the executive went downstairs on the fourth of the month to January to wait for the vote, and we were tasked with taking the call. And the phone rang, and Sinclair picked it up, grinned, said, "We won," and rushed downstairs uh, to bring the news. <coughs> and as he left the room and disappeared, uh, a couple of moments later, I heard a sort of cheer from whoever he met, and as the cheering. Rebounded in my ears. The phone rang again, and a voice said, after a silence, "It's the other way round." <laughs> and as a young, a very young twenty, young twenty-something, I was horrified and terrified. What do I do? Unfortunately, the very affable Tom Roberts, who was our head of information service, said, "Don't worry about it, Chris. I'll go and tell him." And he went downstairs and he told him. And it's a little bit of history. It's my I've remembered that to this day. It taught me that in the best of worlds, in the best of organized worlds, things could go wrong. At the last day on the twenty eighth of May when the executive fell, and you've been wonderful, I agree with Shames and McCartney, and with Noah that the cooperation of generally within within the executive itself was rather wonderful. And I was a privilege to work and see all these these people working together against the background. But on the last day, uh, as the march of farmers and others approached farm buildings, we were in our private office, which was overlooking the main drive of Strong. And it was a shared private office. The, 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 sorry, Jerry Fitz's office on one side, Jerry Fitz's office on one side, Brian Fogg's other, and the private sector were in the middle of the other, in the middle of those days. But as, the, as more and more people came into the entrance of Strong, round and round and round, the gloom, which had already become began to send more and I, I remember the look on, on everyone's face in that room when our police bodyguard, Brian Faulkner had bodyguards and Edward really was working and they were reporting we they were really <coughs> listening and when, I think the calls were this is this is Foxtrot one zero. We're at the roundabout carried up and we can't see the end of the farmers. And then Echo three from Newton Arts said this is Echo three, we're in Newton Arts and we can't see the end of the farmers. They're still coming. And that wasn't just it, but that the horror and the despair that, that we as officials felt and the civil servants, and I knew everyone else. It, I remember that ever since. But I, want, I agree, Seamus and Ty, I, I finished writings and I finished, ended some addresses I gave on saying that uh, when I looked in, in May of 2007 at, at Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness standing there in Parliament buildings, I had a lump in my throat, and that was. Sunningdale, if only, if only, what we could have saved and what would have been saved in the prisoners and the lives. I also agree with you that if I were giving that talk again or, or rewriting some of what I've written, I might in the last two years have to pause on that, but 
it's still in principle that's a wonderful contribution I think which really gives us something we've, we've got from all the speakers today is just a wonderful sense of the atmosphere of the time now there was one other question there from the lady on, on front thank you <coughs> this is from a totally different context Jane Morris is my name um, Women's Coalition etc uh, etc et I was a student at Coleraine University in 74 studying European studies we just joined the European Union and the only thing I really remember about the workers' strike was having to go to the house next door to cook my bacon because they had gas and the electric, mm. and that's how it happened. But I move on to say that to bring it slightly more up to date and into the current context, perhaps. Uh, by the way, my claim to fame with Seamus Mallon, the greatest statesman of, the, of that this country's known, I would say, was being able as deputy speaker of the first. Northern Ireland Assembly to get him to sit down every now and again. But <laughs> <laughs> also, also having slept on the floor with him at Hillsborough Catholic. <laughs> 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 I need to delay lunch, delay lunch, there's more to come. Can I simply say, I was at an event very recently with Paisley Jr., the Kildare Club in Dublin, and uh, he was asked to speak. And he compared Brexit with the Reformation. And he compared uh, 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 Boris Johnson with Henry VIII. And I'm saying that because somebody stood up and said, is the main problem the fact that the, the English have never understood the Irish? And that was a very interesting question. Because I want to ask this room, I love, I've always loved putting cats among pigeons. And that's what I intend to do. Because is it? A possibility, and I'd love the response here, that the Irish have never really understood the English. Is it the other way around? And is it the fact that an awful lot more needs to be done to cross-fertilise that I think both sides aren't doing enough of? And of course, that would be that would be from the Women's Coalition. Well, if we just say, take Martin's uh, question first, maybe about the, on the subject of the Council of Ireland and its <coughs> historical origins, and the I suppose the irony of it being there in the first place to reassure unionists. And uh, w- was there a sense of of its of the I suppose the importance even of the nomenclature using that term, which had origins going back to the Irish Convention, was there anything was there an awareness of its of the history of the term and maybe how it could have been used I was going to say earlier that the book is so long and heavy that the past course involves required reading only of the introduction but obviously Martin has done the honours course and done <laughs> the whole book <laughs> um, anyway on the Council of Ireland I, I didn't go into the question of Carson and the Irish Convention. I think the Irish Convention is very interesting. That is 1917, an effort to try to to get some kind of a settlement before the events that happened afterwards. Sounds familiar. And uh, as Martin, I think, brought out the point that he would know much more about it than I, but the, the what I call loosely the Southern Unionists and uh, were, were more willing to accept home rule for a united Ireland. Anyway, I, I do touch on Walter Long's proposals, and that's where the Council of Ireland came out of. And the Council of Ireland was in the, uh, in the uh, as we know, in the, in the Government of Ireland Act, and to that extent was alive in the early 20s, but it, it never came about. Um, I just would say about the Council of Ireland that I, I don't want to get the impression that, the, that Dublin didn't have a gleam in the eye, as I say, about the idea that the Council of Ireland would lead to Irish unity. 
I try to get across the idea, and I, I, this is my <coughs> memory of it, and I, it's, it's, it's a personal view. I was involved in writing some speeches and so on, that it was quite possible to uh, focus on reconciliation and working together and letting the future work itself out on certain conditions. And at the same time, to hope that these structures you were putting in place, like the Council of Ireland, would be such that over time their benevolent effect would generally, a beneficent effect would generally lead towards the hope of a united Ireland. So there was a hope in Dublin on the part of the Irish ministers that that would be the long-term outcome. Uh, and to that extent you can be critical and say that it was overloaded and that it was a factor. But uh, I think it ha- there had to be some north-south structure. The, uh, the, the key thing, a, a key turning point in my view in British policy in relation to the North was that Green Paper of the 30th of October 1972, which for the first time recognised the Irish dimension, meaning that it was an intrinsic part of the problem here that had to be somehow dealt with. And what I discovered from a, a document, which I think it was John Coakley brought to my attention, a most interesting document, is that the permanent secretaries of some of the Northern Ireland departments had produced a paper a month or two before that green paper in which that concept was, was put forward. So the work was going on here already among the permanent secretaries, and I think one of them would have been Ken Bloomfield, uh, who was later secretary to the executive. And I, I even suspect, although I don't know this, that he might have invented the, the concept Irish dimension. Now, the phrase was a general phrase, and obviously it, it, the question is how you fleshed it out, but there had to be some reflection of that, some expression of that. So there had to be a Council of Ireland or the whole thing wouldn't have held together. It seems to me it's a bit like trying to build a piece of furniture or a stool with a number of legs. <coughs> One of the things was uh, <coughs> put, a, put a solid base under it with uh, commitments on possible change of the status of Northern Ireland and the need for consent. The second was sharing of power within Northern Ireland and the third was this Irish dimension. It's true that in Dublin, ministers coming from a nationalist tradition uh, did hope that that would lead eventually to Irish unity, but that's quite compatible, in my view, with saying, well, look, we're not, this is what we're talking about in the immediate future, reconciliation and working together. There's there's a lot more could be said and written on the Council of Ireland. I'm not sure if I've uh, touched on it. One other thought, if I might, well, I'm talking about whether the Irish and the English (coughs) understand each other, uh, the old view was they talk in, in a hundred years ago the Irish question, and uh, there was hope that the Irish question had been settled <coughs> in the 1920-21 settlement, which in a way, if you like, took a look at it from outside, was predicated on the idea that somehow we'll appease the nationalists in Ireland who want independence, give them a free state, and we'll appease the unionists by giving them, quote, their own state. But that didn't work because it wasn't homogenous. You built in a huge nationalist minority here, and that's been the problem since. So you transpose the old problem uh, into, put it into the narrower ground of Northern Ireland, which is the phrase used by A.T.Q. Stewart. But uh, anyway, the Irish question, what I wanted to say was that (coughs) the complaint in British politics from the late 19th century on was whenever we get the settlement of the Irish question, the Irish changed the question. But looking at the events of this week, 
I wonder, and, and a Brexit, mm. I wonder if the problem now is that when the Irish had a solution to the problem at mm. last, with the help of the British, including the visit of two heads of state and everything going smoothly, the British changed the question. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're back with the problems now again in Brexit. But that's I leave the final word to you. You've, uh, th- this question of the uh, mutual misunderstanding or otherwise between the English and the Irish, as someone who spent a long time in, in Parliament in, uh, in Britain and would have a lot of interaction with um, British politi- politicians even at that day-to-day level, what would your take on Jane's question be? Uh, there are a number of points on it. Uh, could I f- uh, f- first of all thank Jane for the, those fulsome remarks she made about me? <laughs> I remember a different scenario during the talks process. The, I passed every morning the Women's Coalition room, and this morning I decided I'd be brave, knocked the door, came in, and said, Could anybody make me a cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs> You know now what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Do we know the English? I was in Parliament for 20 years about. I must say I enjoyed it immensely. I respected it greatly. And I found it very... Great place to work in. I enjoyed the auditorium. Enjoyed the cut and thrust because that's what it is in the <coughs> chamber. But uh, the one thing you can't do is make the mistake of equating Parliament with government. Parliaments are different, kettle of fish altogether. And uh, I must say it was a pleasure to be there at those turn times. Uh, some people very impressive. Um, Enoch Powell, <coughs> who when I made my maiden speech was sitting directly behind me and he got very agitated and thumping the, the desk. And uh, I had quoted Wilfred Owen's, the lines from Wilfred Owen's poem. Uh, and he was enraged. And I sat down and I said, what the hell was that about? <laughs> he said, if you must quote my friend, quote him properly. And I said, is that right? What we'll do is we'll go to the library, I said, and we'll find out. <laughs> now, the li- library was a matter of uh, 30 yards away. Uh, I had taught English for a number of years. I knew that if I had got it wrong, I would see now that was it. <laughs> but thankfully I got it right. But we sat down and he started to talk. And at one stage, he had tears in his eyes that he had wanted to die in the trenches with his friends, that his ambitions had been thwarted, not in political terms, 
but in those terms. And you see, he kept a horse in livery in London, right up to his latter days, as part of, the, I think, this is my surmise now, as part of the cavalry uh, remembrances that he had. I found him, uh, I found him an, an interesting person. Uh, he was helpful, yeah, helpful to me on one occasion. It was in the select committee and I had a pipe at the time and I took it out to light it up and he again had another nervous breakdown. No, oh, you can't do that with that oil. So that was that. Um, other people there, yes. Um, Tony Benn. I didn't have to agree with him. A superb orator. Ted Heath in his own way. A very interesting orator. Michael Foote, who was... Uh, probably last of the uh, the decent type Labour Party people of that time <coughs> well let's get away from that Jane also made reference to whether we misunderstood the English I don't think so for this reason and the years where I think Part of the solution to the problem, Melee, when you take nationalists and unionists, they made us, let's think about it, for four or five hundred years, they were present, the unionists, as the people who would look after the throne and its ambitions, who would be the jailers of necessary, and the people who weren't that were subject. Now we got used to being subject, and the unionists got used to ruling. And in many ways, if you work down that road, Unionists, uh, in the British, oh, quite a lot to the people, the sets of people whom they have made in that way. And what I never could take was the condescension that you get from the, the people talk about getting these eyes questions resolved as if it were something that had happened two weeks ago and would have to be dealt with quickly. No, it happened a long time ago. I'm not going to go back into it. But that is something. There are two basic facts. And <laughs> I suppose it is terribly wrong of me to raise these at the meeting of historians. But we should remember them. The unionist community... I've lived here for, what, 600 years? Are they Irish people? Is this their country? It is, of course. The nationalist people have lived here. They've had rough times. They're still here. And 
I'll make a prediction, and I think I'm right in this. In 400 years, we'll still be here. <laughs> Living cheek by jowl, facing the same problems with making a living, with giving education or getting education for our children, doing all the things, the normal things of a normal life, which have been so abnormal for us, not just now, but for many, many years, if not centuries. I make that point because we're not going away. And if we're not going away, surely we should work out a way that we can best live together. Now, there are X number of theories about it, and theories are great. I'm all for them, especially when they work. (laughs) But that's one that I think we should pose. They... No, you go. You finish off. I was just concerned that you never got that cup of tea, and that I want to make sure you do get it. It's not. Uh, it's not tea. I was actually thinking of it. <laughs> the last point is this. It's a serious point, uh, and I make it among historians, which I'm not, as you've noticed. I spend a lot of time. Uh, discussing in discussion with that let's call them Protestant people who may be unionists who probably are uh, who come from all sections of unionism X this X that X the other farmers who go, go about their work all sections of unionism. And one thing I've discovered, and I'm not breaking any great claim to discovery, is that the big weakness, that's a political problem, that they don't know Irish history. They don't know the history of unionism. They don't know the history of Presbyterianism in Northern Ireland. And you know what Plato said about history? Not to be aware of the past, is to remain forever a child. (coughs) Now, history was not taught in schools in the north of Ireland. I remember... When I was at primary school, my father was the head of the school. He was also my teacher. (coughs) And uh, he taught history, almost as an act of defiance, because there was a a rule that we shouldn't. When you look at the immense element of historical history, matter that's in Noel's book from which we could all learn is it right that one section at least of our community aren't aware of (coughs) their past (coughs) 
and not to be one-sided. <coughs> Excuse me. Another section of the community that are far too aware <laughs> of their past. I'm 82 years of age now. I suppose in the law of averages I don't have long to go. But I've come to the conclusion that the most potent thought in politics for someone of my time is to be a good ancestor that rather than a good rememberer. I wonder with this generation of very clever, brave people. I wonder will we be good ancestors in the way in which we leave to those who come after us a place where peace is real peace. Peace peace with themselves, peace with the neighbours, a good way of life, <coughs> respect for each other, and the type of dignity and pride in that land we live in, which poses another question. As Oliver LePay used to say, are you talking about shaking hands with a policeman and singing, a policeman and singing Danny Boy? No, no, I'm not. I think there's an awful lot much deeper. It's not even Ireland's call. <laughs> not many rugby players here. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's what I think. And... Uh, I think the art of politics now should be not to learn from the past but to make sure to properly make the present and the future. Thank you. I think that's a very good... Uh... does deserve at least the cup of tea that, the, that he might not have got from the Women's Coalition. Um, just thank you all again to the audience and, and thank, I think we'd, we'd have one more maybe round of applause for all our speakers uh, and to Noel for producing such a wonderful um, account which will stand for posterity for many years to come. So if we just finish up with our traditional round of applause.